This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the boat. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. And I asked him, I said, I want to buy that car right there. Can I buy it from you? He said, no. He said, I'll give it to you. And hey, man. 
We didn't belong there. We did not belong. But I knew we were going to go back and, and beat Richard Petty for sure. I left Pancho in the restroom. He met me out back about 8.30 in the night with a set of cylinder heads. <laughs> and an intake man. Buddy Arrington, we may rest in peace, he just died a week or two ago. Jimmy Means, J.D. McDuffie, all that whole group of people like that. We were all friends, but we raced our asses off. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace, and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Over the years that we've been doing this podcast, we have said a lot of far-fetched things. You think? But there was a time when this would have seemed like the stuff of pure fiction. The Cup Series is returning to North Wilkesboro Speedway for the 2023 All-Star Race. Do you believe in miracles, Steve? If we had said to each other that the All-Star Race was going to return to North Wilkesboro, any time in the past several months, we both would have thought we were crazy. What are you thinking of? No way. For more than 20 years, I drove by North Wilkesboro Speedway on a regular basis and basically just shook my head as time took its toll. I mean, there were times when you couldn't even see the racetrack from 421 because of all the growth and trees and just the decay that was taking place there. Oh, I know what you mean, Rick. I went to the North World Cross Speedway with Junior Johnson, and we walked around the track and just, just were speechless. We had no words for the way the track looked. The Junior Johnson grandstand on the backstretch was nothing but a great big patch of grass and weeds. It was really sad. It was gone, and True. it was all but forgotten. I tweeted this past week, I'm going to have to think that with this announcement, that the 2023 all-star race at North Wilkesboro is going to go down as one of the most highly anticipated events in NASCAR history. You and I were both around for the buzz surrounding one hot night, the 1992, the Winston at Charlotte, which was the first one run under the lights. There was the 1992 Hooters 500 with the championship up for grabs between so many different drivers and it being Richard Petty's last race. And then there was the 1994 Rickyard 400 at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This is going to go right up amongst those. Oh, I agree 100%. I also tweeted something about it. I said, you're not going to be able to get people in there with a shoehorn. It's no. going to be so crowded. And the other thing is, if you want to find a room, you might as well start in Charlotte. Or Winston-Salem, because there's not going to be anything available around North Wilkesboro. And the merchants in North Wilkesboro are going to love it. No two ways about it. And I really agree with you, Rick. I think this is going to be an historical event. I do believe that there is still a lot of work to be done to no the facility yeah. there. No question. I don't want anybody to forget about safer barriers. Right. They've got to have those up. I believe that the catch fencing needs some work. I don't know that it has been replaced after all these years of decay and everything. So that needs some work and also the media facilities, because even when it was still up and running, 
in the 1990s when it was still hosting yearly Winston Cup events, the media facilities were pretty sparse. Yes, they were. And with the kind of interest that's going to be in this race, they're going to have to do something. I would say maybe bring in a couple of trailers or or something for all the media to set up in because there's going to be a monstrous amount of interest in this. I agree with you, Rick, but let's remember this. Speedway Motorsports Incorporated, which owns North Forks Bolt, doesn't do anything second class. They will do what it takes to have that track look at its finest and be at its most well-prepared. I am also going to go on the record and say this. If North Wilkesboro Speedway can return from the dead, it gives me renewed hope for the future of the St. Archive. You believe in miracles, Rick? We've just seen one. Who knows? Smart money for years and years and years was on North Wilkesboro never coming back. And now it's alive again. And I'm not going to get into all the roadblocks that we have faced over the years trying to get a scene archive up and running, but maybe just maybe there's hope that we can work something out. Maybe possibly at some point down the road, anything is possible. We just have to hang on to that. Absolutely. Rick, hang on to it, Rick, because you never know. But then again, we do know miracles happen. Correct. Yes, we do. Steve this week in our first segment. We have the first installment of our fantastic conversation with the one and the only DK Ulrich. Oh, what a character. (laughs) Hold on to your hats, folks. (laughs) In this installment, DK talks about how AJ Foyt influenced him to not only be known by his initials, but also to pursue a career in racing. DK then remembers a chance offer for a 1957 Chevrolet that literally altered the course of his life and career, and also his earliest days as one of NASCAR's independent team owners and drivers. And make no mistake about it, those independents were not just stroking around the racetrack to collect an easy paycheck. There was nothing easy about it. And if that meant boosting parts from Holman Moody <laughs> and traveling all over the United States without ever once going home, then so be it. The independent drivers once formed the majority of any NASCAR field. And yes, indeed, they did have to stroll because they did not have factory backing or major sponsorship but they did have fierce competition among themselves. They really wanted to beat each other because that was the best they could do. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the June 15th, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene. Benny Parsons whoops Richard Petty at Riverside after Kel Yarbrough and Darrell Walter fall out of contention. There's a feature story on Humpy Wheeler written by this kid out of Roanoke, Virginia. This guy went on to have a halfway decent career in the sport. (laughs) (laughs) And there was also a story on the women of the Petty family, Linda, Elizabeth, Sharon, and Lisa. How about that, Rick? And I can tell you one thing. Interviews with Elizabeth, who was Richard Petty's mother, were few and far between. Scene really got a coup with that one. This week, we have new Patreon support from Matthew Carter and somebody who calls themselves Favorite Human. We also have PayPal support from Rick Irwin, 
and Henry Sam. So Matthew and Rick and Henry and favorite human, whoever you might be. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. You make this dream come true. What we're trying to do here at the same vault podcast. I deeply and truly appreciate it. Listeners, if you possibly can, please help us out on Patreon. That address is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the Seam Vault Podcast, paypal.me slash the Seam Vault Podcast, or venmo.com slash the Seam Vault Podcast. And this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brain. Well, DK, first of all, I know that you were born in New Jersey. How did you wind up in California? Well, my, I drove my dad's car there when I was seven years old. <laughs> seven. <laughs> Nineteen. It was a 1940 Buick. And we, he was... Uh, uh, he worked for the government. He was in the Ways and Means Committee of the government. And, and he was in Philadelphia doing something with a Philadelphia Naval Base and decided that I was born at that time, and however that happened. And then they, they, they left. I didn't live there. I was just born there. And then uh, they wanted to go to California. And I wanted to drive race cars. I always did. And I sat in the middle seat of the bench seat that's in the 40 Buick. And no seat belts. No seat belts, I'm sure. I don't think they even invented it. <laughs> we like we had a car, but my left foot on the gas, my left arm on the steering wheel, and I drove the whole distance. Not in the city or when we were parking or anything, but I drove I don't know how many thousand miles out to California, uh, and there we were. So I was raised there, raised in uh, Southern California, San Bernardino. Um, that's it. That's how I got to California. How did you first get interested in racing? Uh, my mom and dad are very religious people, great parents, you know, all the way. And, and they didn't like us kids. There were three of us, uh, and this is in, uh, I'm going to say, 1953 or four or something like that when we were just moving to California. And they, they didn't like us to go to the movies. They didn't like us actually to go anywhere. We just had to go to church. And that was it. And and then they both worked, and they gave, they um, had all three of us boys. We were like two two years apart. I was a center guy, and, and the three boys. And we got to uh, uh, in San Bernardino. They both worked, and so they they uh, sent us to California Kitty College. Okay, that's KKK, but it wasn't a. <laughs> <laughs> and it was California Kitty College. Yeah. And and. After school, we would go there until they finished work, and then we would go. Anyway, the guy that ran California Kitty College was Bob Walden, who nobody knows, uh, and and they liked to go to the races. Well, my mom and dad, they were very regimented or uh, of uh, people of uh, habit, let's say, and Saturday night was my mom's lucky night, if you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so they would have they would put Lawrence Welk on TV <laughs> Lawrence Welk the champagne music of Lawrence Welk yeah yeah. Uh, and then they would dance in the living room and then pretty soon they would they would go off somewhere 
and I, I, they just disappear, you know. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't have any idea. But my dad told me it was her lucky night. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, anyway, um, we wanted to go do something, you know, something that wasn't the movies or something that we could do and still lined up with our church uh, program. And Bob Walden liked to go to the, the midget races, the local midget races. And I went, went with him a couple of times, ten times, I don't know, but we would always go Saturday night and then come back to his place for a little while and have a soda and whatever it was and a little party and then and then go on. Mama, my dad would come down, pick me up, and go. But during that time, these races were amazing. I just I fell in love with racing. And I didn't have my dad, nobody in my family ever did it or anything else. I just wanted to do it. And they had this, um, I mean, I went race after race, and nothing, nobody famous was there uh, at, at, at that little track. But um, on, a, on one Saturday night, the promoter had invited a, a guy in from Texas to, uh, to drive one of the midgets. You know, and I didn't know too much about it, but I, I looked in and there was a guy, there was a midget racer owner named Harry Stockman. Okay, I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> he had, to, I don't know about his car, but he's, every race he started, he finished last. Always. He just, I, I think, he was just a steering wheel holder, you know. <laughs> but he finished last. And this boy come in from Texas, and he came in there and won, he got fast time, won the trophy dash, won the heat race, and won the main event. All three of them. The car that never been anything but last. And I said, man, this guy's something else, you know. And, and we went to... Um, after the races, I went with Bob Walden back to the Kitty College, and so did the drivers came, and they had beers and stuff in a party there. And I walked up to this guy, and I said, his name was A.J. Foyt, was the guy's name, okay. And I, from that moment on, I, I used to be Don, or Donald, but from that moment on, I, I said, I'm going to be D.K. now. Because he's A.J., That's you're right, going to be. That man can come in there and whip all these people. The only thing I can do right now, I'm only 13 or something, and that was 1957. And I said, the only thing I can do right now is I'm just going to start using my initials, and I'm going to figure out how to race as time goes on. And that was that was the day that I said, uh, I'm going to be a race car driver, and that's it. I have nothing else that I want to do. Um, took from there, um, at my age, I had to finish high school, uh, go to, get in the Army, and get out of the Army. I had an honorable discharge in, I think, 62 or something like that, and then... When I got rid of that, got married for a little bit, and then said, all right, the heck with this. I'm going racing, and that's it, 1968. From what I've been able to gather, you and a buddy were on the way to Vegas in 19— oh, this, is, this is prior to racing now. This is, this is like back okay. in—I uh, uh, I was racing locally. Okay. I was racing, racing uh, kind of like uh, Bush Series or whatever like that, but right. it was not Bush. It was, it was California Racing Association and driving cars every Saturday night, and we had— a group of people that work with us and all volunteers and all for fun and all that. But, but one day, um, I decided to, me and me and Mike decided to go out and seek our fortune. We had a couple of hundred bucks between us and we we're going to go to Las Vegas. And we just drove up there from San Bernardino. Well, from what I understand, you stopped in a little town called Baker. Baker. Yeah. California. Baker, California. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 93 miles from Las Vegas and 132 from San Bernardino. I remember that right now. And that's where we we um, uh, we just stopped for a minute to get gas and a burger or something like that. And I saw the junkyard that had a 57 Chevy body, or it was just an old 
junk car, you know, and I wanted to go in there and uh, and see if I could buy that, you know, because we were but we just do, doing Saturday night stuff, you know. Stopped in and asked the guy if I could. His name was Karma Duke, okay, and I asked him. I said, I want to buy that car right there. Can I buy it from you? He said, No. He said, I'll give it to you. Okay, great. <laughs> Walking A, man. <laughs> what kind of deal is this, you know? Yeah. And he said, well, he says, There's a, there, is a, there is a catch. You got to take these other 800 cars with it. And, and I said, uh, you mean you're going to give me all of them? And he said, here's what's happened is the constable and has seen this to be a, uh, a mess. In a, and always people come into this town. All they see is junkyard with all these cars in it. You know, we want to clean up the area. And he said, you got 90 days to get all these cars out of here. 90 days That's it. 90 to get days. 800 cars out. 800 cars. And you just stopped for gas. All we did was get a burger and gas. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that, that guy, um, I said, I looked at Mike, and, you know, and, and said, well, we don't need to go to Vegas. Let's just, we can make our, we can make some money right here, you know. And we, that's what we did. We said, we're going to do it. And I told Karma right then, call him Duke, not Karma. But I said, Duke. You're on, buddy. How much time do I have? He says, 90 days. <laughs> and so we, we took off from there, and me and Mike turned right back around and went to San Bernardino. And in order to, we didn't have any money, but we needed a truck. We needed a, a welding equipment, you know, cutting torches and all that. And we needed um, uh, something to crush the cars with in order, in order to get rid of them. We knew the basic thing about, about handling junk cars, but we didn't have anything to do it with. So I put all that together by... Uh, the guy that one of the race car drivers in San Bernardino where I was racing was Sam Rose and his father owned a, a junkyard. So they sent me like an A-frame truck to let me have that first 90 days. I told him I'd pay him when I was done. <laughs> <laughs> then we took a $100 bill and, and uh, or $100 and got all ones. This big grab of money like that and had 20 on top of it. You know, and have it in my pocket. So when I go into the to the, uh, they had invented, well, they had some credit cards. They had Master Charge and uh, Bank America card. That's all they had in, the, in that day. And people didn't really deal with cards. Like, but I, I go into the welding store and I told them I wanted to have this, that, that, and the other is for the A1 Salvage Company. And, uh, you know, you sent us a bill. And I had the money out in my hand when I was doing that. You know, I put it in my other pocket or something, you know, so they could see that we were. So they did it. The A1 Salvage Company? It didn't even exist. That didn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) But the guys, you know, the garage up there where the junkyard was, was the A1 Garage in Baker, California. So I just used that name in case they wanted to make a phone call. They could find us up there somewhere. So we we just kind of bullshit our way through everything and got all the stuff and went up the road with it. And it's uh, Baker, California was kind of a a place where they had a lot of transients. Guys would lose their money in Las Vegas, make their way back that far, and maybe they had a head gasket problem or something like that, and and, and they would stay there. And, and uh, so there's a lot of guys hanging around doing nothing, and we hired them to do the work for us. The way we went, you know, and we just cut all the pieces out of it, saved all the aluminum over here and the, and the uh, copper over here, and wiring was all copper, you know, so you throw that in a pile. And we burned all that stuff, you know, when we get a big pile of it and just made this all this stuff work. And I had the truck that Mike and I went up there in, like a, a pickup truck. And we did all the little stuff with that. And then the big truck that we leased, 
without somehow without any money. I don't remember how, <laughs> how we sh- <laughs> how we got through that, but we got it and started doing it. And we were just crushing them with the uh, we we had this A-frame thing, and and we had a, a, a water tank that was laying out there with it. Cut the water tank in half, filled it full of sand, welded the top back on it, and then picked it up and put a hook in it, and put, picked it up with that and let her go and hit the cars, you know, and then pull it back up again, move it over a little bit, drop it, drop the car. And we, we'd take 13 cars at a time that would, that would fit on this truck, the flat ones, flat cars, and take them over to where you sold the, the metal and everything. We'd already stripped out when we got it. In fact, well, during that time, we had uh, all these cars that were full of upholstery, and, and you know, we'd stripped them all out, but they were full of upholstery, and they had, uh, so we had to burn them all. And they wouldn't allow us to burn them forever. You know, it's California, no burning, whatever it is. And, and so we, we said um, that we had an old fire engine that was at the, at the um, junkyard there. And we took that and convinced the local people that we were going to have a fire department up there, that we'd have two or three guys, you know, anytime there's a fire, we'll be there. Right? And, but I said, we got to have practice, and so we need to burn these cars here. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we got away with doing it, and and you know the 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 you don't need to go into a lot of detail here, but 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 you would go this way, that way, and take this out of the car, and the rear ends would go over here, the carburetors would go over there, and whatever it is, and then you'd have the the hull of the car, but it has all the upholstery and stuff in it, and then whatever else is in there, and we'd put it under the or, or put it in the, in the pile, and burn them all at one time. We'd burn we'd burn thirty five, forty cars at a time, big fire, <laughs> and then. And then sm- smash them after that, and put them on the truck, and take them away. We made uh, in the ninety days, and we got it done. Uh, we ke- we kept the fifty seven Chevy. We didn't. <laughs> we, <laughs> you didn't accidentally we, smash no, no, it. No, we didn't. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't crush it. Anyway, um, at the end of the day, we made about thirty five thousand dollars, and that was big in that time. I mean, this was nineteen sixty eight. This was 1968? No, this was going to, yes, 1968. It's going to be 67, 68, somewhere yeah, in there. Right, yeah. can't remember exactly what that is. Uh, I know the phone number of the place, but I can't remember what you <laughs> But that, that, that happens. Anyway, that, that, um, that's what I had in my pocket when we got done. And me and Mike looked at each other and said, we came in here with $200. And in 90 days, we got, it's all cash too, you know, we got $36,000, I think it was $37,000 that we get, <clears throat> that we had. And we're in Fat City then, I mean, you're like, we're, we're ready to go now, we're ready to do something. And so I talked to Duke, and he said he was getting ready to retire. I said, well, we you take for your junkyard? There's nothing in it now. <laughs> <laughs> but but he, he, he said he'd take $30,000 for it. And so I bought it at that time, $30,000, and had $7,000 left over. I'm still in Fat City, you know, we're still good. There was nothing there but a building and a, a garage, like a repair garage. But, you know, he'd take all his tools out and everything when he left, but, but that's what we had. And I started making uh, a – a lot of people would have a head gasket problem in those days, and, and it was all hot in the, in the middle of the desert, and they're hauling ass to go – to Las Vegas, and then they're trying to figure out how to get home from there, and they blow a head gasket, and they need repair. So I, I put this c- concoction together of um, aluminum shavings, uh, sodium silicate, which is which is egg preserver that they put to make the, the eggs hard on the outside so they don't break when you sell them, 
And I put this concoction together that if we could take a car with a blown head gasket and drain all the water out of it, start the car up and just get everything hot, right? run some water back in it and get it where it's just boiling hot and then drain that out. No, no, put the sodium silicate concoction in the radiator and then get it as hot as you can get it and shut it off and drain it out. And if you let it sit overnight, you got a brand new motor in the next morning. I mean, you know, you got the head gasket is repaired and you can get, you can get down the road into LA or wherever you're going from there. And we uh, made it work, you know. And the thing that we did with that is when you come in, it costs $100 for me to do that. Then I take you to the hotel, you stay overnight while we fix the, you know, while we let the thing set. The restaurant, the hotel, everything downtown, I got a nick off of all that. I got a few dollars off of every time we brought somebody down there and then made enough money to start building my money back up again, you know. And I got it back up where I had maybe $15,000 cash and then started going racing. That's when I decided to go racing right then. You know, I had, it was 1969, I think, by then, and I went and bought a 1970 Ford a Torino 426 four speed all the stuff I needed to start with you know bought it financed it with Ford Motor Credit $144 a month took the car over to my house where I lived and we and me and Mike stripped it all out brand new stuff you know people going shaking their heads looking at us like what are you doing this is a brand new car but kept the motor transmission rear end and a couple of things, but took everything else out of it, sold the radio, whatever we could out of it to, uh, uh, to get ready to, to uh, race that car. So 1969, you're going racing again. You've built up your business in, in Baker. Yeah. You get a race car and you're going to race it. At what point did you start thinking about giving Weston Cup a try? Right then. I mean, right then. I already been racing locally. Right. And we went a couple of trophies here and there and did what I did at the Orange Show Speedway. And then we went to Ascot Park and ran in the dirt sometimes. And, and you know, I did I had that set going on at all times, except when I was in the Army. I had that thing going there. And this is what I said at that time when I went to Baker. I'm, I'm good now. i got a place of business that I'm going to sell. And, and I have, you know, $15,000 in my pocket. So me and Mike loaded it up on a, that car that we just stripped out, loaded that up on a, on a flat trailer, flat open trailer and a 56 Ford pickup truck. It was old too. I mean, right. it was, it, it, this is, this is 68. That's a 56 and it was old. It was, it didn't, windshield wipers didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and we took off to go to Holman and Moody in North Carolina and get the front clip put on and the rear clip and kind of make a race car out of it, roll cage and all that. Out of it. But you didn't do it like to do today i mean you know you take a car like that and, and make it into a race car you didn't just make a race car and turn it into a stock car you know so so we, we did all that and went there came back and i remember that when the, we got into a big storm in uh, oklahoma city on the way back and that's the, that's the first time i needed a windshield wipers and so we took a, a bungee cord and a piece of string or like a piece of rope tied them together you know where they where they work together yeah. And put the bungee cord on the one by the driver, and then a rope like this here. And Mike would go pull, pull this <laughs> and make the windshield wipers go back and forth. My my whole deal with racing is a story of um, 
we didn't belong there. We did not belong there. But I knew we were going to go back and, and beat Richard Petty for sure. He'd be easy. <laughs> I knew that when I went and when I did all yeah. this. I said, all yeah. we got to do is get some good equipment and go. I easy. Drive, I drive a car. <laughs> Don't worry about that. That's a piece of cake. <laughs> now, you obviously had your business interests yeah. in California, and that eventually expanded, I'm sure. How difficult was it for you to balance your racing with your other business interests? I really didn't. You know, the the I, I gave the uh, the garage, the, the A1 garage, it was running on it. was running smooth with all these things we were doing. And we had the fire department, which we made, and, and people were doing that. And, and But I had somebody do all of it. I, didn't, okay. I, I left town and had people doing it all, and it was for sale. You know, I, I just I didn't build it into anything more than it was. Uh, we got nearly 50000 out of it when I sold it. You know, so I made a little profit there. And uh, that was after I got the car back from home in Moody. I had to finish it up. And we had to have a real race engine. And we had to have, you know, real parts to make the car go. go. So we spent that money doing that. And when I left town to go racing, we had a, um, there was a place in San Bernardino called, I can't remember. But the guy that owned it was Bob Brown. And he said, if you take that bus right there and make a camper out of it and pull your race car with that and head back east. He just, you know, he always did everything for me locally and, and he, he wanted to do that for me on my excursion to the big time. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it. I mean, I mean yeah. all, all we knew is what we saw and, uh, or, you know, what we saw at Riverside and I wanted to go there first and go from there, you know, and, and put this all together and got the, Got the, the bus and the pickup truck, and the bus was, we, we made beds in it out of wood <laughs> yeah, and with mattresses, you know. Yeah. It had no facilities in it at all. It just was a place to sleep, and then we had a, a grill to cook out on and, and make our way. But it was really a low-budget operation. And we tried to get the race car ready for Riverside but never made it. We we got got it done where I thought we could go from um, – from California and get to Atlanta for the race at Atlanta in 1970. And we were trying to get to the, that race. And that was our goal. But we never made that either. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of yeah. stuff happened in between. The money that you won racing, you didn't just throw it all back into the car to try to make it to the next race. You actually, from what I understand, invested some and spent some. What made you different in that respect than so many of of the other independent drivers who basically poured every cent that they had back into the race team. What made you want to do that? Well, I, I didn't spend a lot of it. I didn't keep a lot of it. If I, if I would make uh, $2,000 at the race, I might take 200 and put it back over here and buy stuff for the rest of it. Cause the stuff I could buy isn't, I mean, I can't buy the stuff that the, that the factory guys had. They wouldn't even sell it to you. You, you couldn't, you couldn't you couldn't borrow it. You know, it was just the factory wouldn't allow you to have those parts. So so I bought parts that I could afford and try to put some money back so that one day whenever I get enough I can do what I want to do, you know, but I just wanted to uh, do that and then and then the investments. I've never invested in the stock market or never invested in somebody else's program. I invest in something myself. Uh, for example I built a, a um, I needed a new shop 
somewhere down the line, probably in the 80s or 70s, late 70s or something. I need a new shop. So, so I bought a piece of property and then subdivided it and, and built six shops. I kept one, sold the other five, and came out of there with a few dollars in my hand and a shop. And just like that, I would do things that were um, entrepreneurial, let's say, or, or just try to make one dollar make two and, and move it around a little bit instead of just putting it in a car. And I don't think it ever cost me on the racetrack. I mean, I mean, I, I, nobody knows what it was like to be an independent. And I, I wanted to win the race, but I know I can't. I know I can maybe finish behind those other 12 guys that were factory guys. You had Holman Moody, you had uh, Junior Johnson, you had Wood Brothers, Nord Kruskoff, and, and, and each one had a car, sometimes two. And those 12 guys, you're, you can't outrun them. You just absolutely cannot outrun them without their kind of budget. You know, you can't. And, and you have to have the support of the factory. I mean, every, how, I wanted to get a set of um, a cylinder heads. When Ford made the Hemi head engine, and I don't know when it was, you could put them on a, on a hemispherical head uh, and, and an intake manifold that went with it. You could put that on a, on a 427 Ford motor and have yourself immediately another 100 horsepower, you know. And, and when you go down a straightaway, you can easily see the guy that has it and the guy don't, you know. So I never could get that. And, and I went to uh, Holman Moody and talked to John Holman. And went, went in there and stood on his desk, you know, because I'm, 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 I'm here to get a set of those cylinders. You stood on his desk? No, no, I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying that, meaning I was up, up on him, you know, like yeah, talking yeah, to him yeah, like yeah, this yeah, right yeah. here, you know. I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't going in there to, to not come out with cylinder heads. I did. I came out with no cylinder heads. He wouldn't sell them to me. He he wouldn't. He just couldn't. He said, Ford won't let me do this. And so that's the way it is. And and so I said, well, I guess what we'll do here, and I, I said, I'll, I'll pay you whatever you need. You know, wouldn't do it. So I went, I went. I left and went back to the shop and talked to my buddy Ponch, Poncho, who worked for me. And I said, we're going to go down to home and Moody tomorrow. So we did. We went down there, and I went. I went back in there to John, and I said, "Is there any possible way in the used set, just some way I can get these cylinder heads?" And and you know, he said, "I talked to you last week. I told you what the deal was." You know, he said, "Even if you if you came in here with all the money in town, I can't sell them to you." Well, at that time, I had left Pancho in the restroom, and I went in there at four thirty-five in the night, and talked to him for a while. They they closed up, and I left. I left Pancho in the restroom. He met me out back about 8.30 in the night with a set of cylinder heads <laughs> and an intake manifold. Right? John Holman, if he was alive today, he would he'd say, no, you didn't. He'd say, we were missing some parts. <laughs> That's how I got the And I went to Pocono with, these, with this motor put together and qualified eighth. And I never led the race because I had the tire issue during the race. And, and, but, I mean, I, I was... I went by Donnie Allison, and he's looking at me like, Where, <laughs> where'd you come from, dude? You, you belong back here. <laughs> but it was fun. It was fun to do, and, and we had uh, had a good time with that. What was your goal? Were you wanting to get hooked up with a Holman and Moody and drive for them or a Petty Enterprises or Wood Brothers, or were you wanting to build your own program and get some factory support? I didn't think it was ever possible 
to do that. And I just realized after I got back here, you know, this is way into my, this is 10 years into my career right now we're talking about. Right. But, you know, on the, on the fifth day I was trying to race cars and realized I was way off everywhere. Uh, and I didn't have any knowledge of what was going on. I had to learn all that. And so I said, during this first period of time, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to learn. I'm going to figure this thing out. And by 1975, I got it figured out. And, and when I say that, I still can't win the race. But in the four years that I ran the full schedule, 76, 7, 8, and 9, I, I finished in the top 15 in points each time. So I would have made the playoffs if they had them. But they, <laughs> they didn't have them at the time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's that's what you can only expect to do. But when it comes to um, Buddy Arrington, we may rest in peace. He just died a week or two ago. Uh, Jimmy Means, J.D. McDuffie, uh, all that whole group of people like that. We were all friends, but we raced our asses off. I mean, we didn't in, in the race. We had what we had, and I could beat those guys. They could beat me. But when I went to the races, I didn't. People think I went there to stroke around and do nothing. No, we were doing all we could, all we could at the back. When I say that, it's just, it was, a, it was like a, a different division that we were racing. And I won that division many times, never the race. But I finished fourth up in Dover in uh, 1981, I think it was. That's my best finish that I ever had as a driver. At one point, somewhere, I believe in the mid-1970s, some of the independent drivers actually got together and basically went to war with NASCAR over the structure of the purses and plan money and so forth. How involved in all that were I you? I led that. Okay. I led that, and Richard joined me in doing that to, to get a name in the thing. And we met here in Charlotte uh, with, I don't know, 25, 30 people. And we, we weren't against NASCAR. It was just that we needed more purse money, and we all survived on purse money. You know, I had a couple little sponsors. You know, they were usually – give us sandwiches and beer at the local bar <laughs> and put the name yeah. on the car. <laughs> yeah. How did all that work out? How did all that plan out with NASCAR? Uh, it, it, it lasted about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Billy Jr., Billy Jr. He, he spoke with a iron fist, you know, <laughs> when, when, when you go in the back room with him, you know what's going to happen when you come out. You know, you already know. I mean, he's he's in charge. He was in charge, and and they he said the one thing that that NASCAR does not do is deal with the race car drivers as a group. We just don't do that. He meant it. You know, and all, and all of a sudden, it was so difficult for me to get anything done with NASCAR because of that. Uh, you could apologize, or you could just not do it anymore. But at the end of the day, he remembered everything. Well, didn't plan money eventually come into I don't think exist? that brought it in. Okay. No, right. I, I, I don't believe that we – I mean, what, what we did in, in that meeting that we had here is I generated interest with everybody that we need to do something here and we need to have it. And they had to – this was after the PDA, the Professional Drivers Association that was at Talladega in 69. Right. That was up and gone. And then this was the next thing that was – uh, a group effort trying to, and and pretty soon they 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 listened to the guys and what, and what we were, and we just I showed them with it that this can't happen. That there's not enough purse money. If you finish tenth every week, it's not enough to buy any tires. You know, you can't really do anything with it. And uh, I think they recognized it at that time, but I never got anything out of it except uh, bad 
bad publicity or whatever you want to call it, but they didn't like me after that. It took me a long time to to uh, get back to. That was going to be in '72, maybe or three or something like that. It was okay. I just got there and I thought I could do everything. I was, I knew I could do everything. It didn't matter. I can run. I can run NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> I can do anything. It didn't matter. I knew I could. I never could, but. <laughs> you mentioned the other independent drivers. Mm-hmm. Of those guys, of those teams, was there one or two that maybe you were closer to than the others that you kind of? Oh yeah, I mean Elmo was my best friend, Elmo Langley that time he was older than me but he was showing me everything he was when we first started he showed me the ropes here's what you do you know this is what you don't do and and then he was my best friend to begin with uh, and you know after that uh, we always were all of us worked together we, we all knew that we couldn't win but we knew that when the green flag drops we're going to kick each other's butt however we could you know sometimes you had to lay back a little bit but <laughs> Tell me a really good story about James Harvey Hilton. Well, you know, I don't know whether if I got a good one about him. <laughs> he was a good friend. Yeah. Uh, and, and I remember there was a day that he, he, he was getting uh, something at Pocono Raceway. He was getting a, a dinner for some reason. I don't remember what it was, but I had a plane at that time, and, and I flew him up there just, for, just to be there, and I was at the, uh, at the party with him. I, I don't have a, um, a real good story about uh, James. I mean, we, 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 we shared everything we had and, and we're very good friends. Uh, you'll see a, some pictures of he and I and Richard Childers when he was driving that we all kind of hung together at that time. But That's actually the next person that I was going to ask about was yeah. Richard Childress because you knew Richard Childress before Del Earnhardt and so on and so forth. I knew Richard Childress in Islip, Long Island, New York, when uh, Grand National East, and he and I went there, and it was our first, not our first race, but first race that we were going to run in the circuit for a while. You know, we got there, and I, I met him there, and we went downtown, chased horse down in, in New York City <laughs> back then. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> if you're out there, Richard, <laughs> I love you, man, but I got to tell the truth. <laughs> and Richard, if you're out there listening... Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> From what I understand, James and Richard in particular loved to play practical jokes on each other. Yeah, always. Tell me a good practical joke story about those two. Uh, let's see. Uh, not Richard, because uh, Richard, we, we never really ran together, but we knew each other all this time. And right now, today, if I walk in the garage, he's going to go out of his way to come over and shake my hand and say, hello, really great guy. I don't have any stories to tell on him. <laughs> and and Sure you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know that um, I can tell you a story on another guy, but I don't know I can. I don't know. I don't have a good one on James. We ran together a lot. And uh, going up the road, we always were together, you know, and we had a good time together. And I was very uh, uh, upset when that happened and he died, you know, and, and him and him and, um, and boy, uh, I, I don't have one. Do you have any about practical jokes between the two? Uh, only uh, between anybody or just, just? Between anybody. That's fine. Mark Martin came into my shop with a patchy stove uh, Pontiac. And I don't know what year it was sometime there, but he didn't have a place to be, you know, and, and Mark had driven for me once 
in Talladega. His mother had put something together with a local Chevrolet dealer, and, and we had a good. But Mark came into there, and <clears throat> he had this Pontiac, and, I, and he was fast, you know, and he was from up north. And I went to see all the stuff, you know, he drilled holes in everything. He had, he'd, you know, for, for weight. He'd, every gusset in the roll bar had a hole drilled in it. And he'd, he had these, all this Swiss cheese-looking car, you know, and it weighed less. And I said, what's the difference? You still got to weigh 3,600 pounds or whatever it was. But, you know, it all was down here instead of up here. But anyway, and, uh, we, we had um, drilled holes in the toilet paper and put it in the restroom where he was going. <laughs> Every morning he'd go in the restroom. <laughs> and then Buddy Parrott, who was next door, working with the K&K insurance car or something like that, that, that um, he was next door, and he put a put a um, like a bomb or like a firecracker bomb in right next to the toilet only with a string going outside. <laughs> so, so if Mark goes in there... <laughs> And we figured just about the right time <laughs> and blew that firecracker off. <laughs> and he came out of there <laughs> pulling up his britches. <laughs> and we know he had to use something. <laughs> I don't know how he used that. We had, we had a whole, nearly the whole roll with holes drilled in it. <laughs> he yep. got a kick out of that. That was another time. Mark's a good guy. He drove for me a couple of times in, in his uh, career. There's a lot of guys that would uh, that did the practical joke stuff, and it was fun. Buddy Parrott was one of them. He's a he's he's still around. I hadn't heard from him in a while. He and I went to Sturgis together in 2000, 2001. Not together, but we went at the same yeah. time. Robert Yates was there, and a bunch of us were motorcycle guys up there. Give me a minute to think about it, and I'll come up with some practical joke kind of stuff. I mean, you heard the, That's, the Riverside I, program. I told. Uh, moody about <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that we'll, we'll get, get to that <laughs> and those kind of things they weren't practical jokes but the experiences were amazing it's so different to, that uh, yeah you know when when we go down the road uh, my, my crew chief at the time and i'm going to say this is uh uh se- 75 maybe or something like that was was dean anderson was his name and he was a crew chief but he has no crew <laughs> we didn't have a crew. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me and him. Me and him and um, Johnny, Jack, and Jose Cuervo, Jack Daniels, and Johnny Walker. <laughs> we all went down the road together, <laughs> along with a handful of pocket rockets. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> to keep us awake. And, and just two of us in the truck. And we'd go out to California and everywhere else. And I ran with, with Elmo Langley at the time where he was, we, we'd drive together. He had a he had a truck and a and a flat trailer behind it. I had the same thing, and we 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 traveled all the way out west. But when we left to go to um, out west and and that yeah, summer stretch out there, we were going to Atlanta first, directly over to uh, Texas World Speedway, and from there to Riverside, and from Riverside to Michigan, and from Michigan to Pocono, and then back down. We had that that route that we we're going to take. We never came home. You just kept going, and you had one motor in the truck and one motor in the car, and that's it. You know, you got to figure out how to make it on that, and we did. You know, we we'd make that loop and live right there in the truck. Yeah. 
This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's Racing Showplace. Now, I don't know about you, but after this installment of the interview with DK, I'm thinking we might need to change our theme music to something from Lawrence Welk. Oh, please don't. <laughs> no. You know, to get our listeners in the mood for a little NASCAR history. <laughs> <laughs> it's Saturday night. DK's mom and daddy put on a little Lawrence Welk music. They pack DK off to the races. One thing leads to another. And all of a sudden, the birds are chirping and the bees are buzzing. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you trying to say there, Rick? <laughs> I believe that's all I need to say. But once DK did share that story, I knew that this wasn't going to be just another run-of-the-mill interview. Oh, no, not with the birds and bees in it. Uh-uh. Well, certainly not with DK telling it. <laughs> Here is a piece of trivia for you. Do you know what DK stands for? Yes, I do. I've known him many, many years. Donald Keith. Now, did you really know that or did you look it up? No. For years, I thought it was David Keith. And then he straightened me out. It's Donald Keith. Donald Keith. And do you know why DK goes by his initials rather than Donald, Don, whatever? Or Keith? No, I don't. If initials are good enough for Anthony Joseph Foyt, then they are good enough for DK Ulrich. <laughs> oh. Sound logic, sound logic. AJ had come to town to run a car whose regular driver almost always finished at or very near the back of the field. And all AJ did with that very same car was set fast time, he won his trophy dash, won his qualifying heat, and the feature. And this was in 1957, according to DK. And from that point on, he was DK and not Donald Keith. And he was going to be a race car driver, period. Well, he did have a very good example in A.J. Foyt, don't you think, Britt? Absolutely. 1968, DK and a buddy are on their way to Las Vegas where they plan to seek their fortune. And they stop just by chance in a little town called Baker, California. And DK sees what was evidently a junked out 1957 Chevrolet that he wanted to get his hands on. And he asked about it. He's told that he can have the car. Now that's a deal. You can have the car. Got a big catch to that one. Oh, there was a big catch. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to figure out a way to get rid of the entire junkyard that consisted of about 800 other cars. Evidently, this place was on the way into town, and the city fathers decided that it was an eyesore. They wanted to present a postcard picture of Baker, California, and not only does DK have to get rid of 800 cars, he only has 90 days to do it. Are you kidding me? 800 cars in 90 days? Well, let's just say this. DK must really have wanted that 57 Chevrolet because he went to work. They wouldn't let him burn the seats and interiors out of the car. So he started a fire department in Baker. And he told everybody that they needed to practice putting out fires. So there goes all those interiors up in flames, just like DK wanted to do in the first place. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The guy wanted a 57 Chevrolet. Yes. He's got to get rid of 800 cars. 
Yes. In 90 days in a junkyard. All right. In uh -huh. order to get them to burn the seats, which they don't want him to do, he creates his own fire department. Yes, sir. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and offers to train people by having them burn the seats. Uh huh. Man, man, the guy's either crazy or a genius, one or the other. It may very well be both. <laughs> <laughs> The long and short of this story is that not only did DK come away with that 1957 Chevrolet, he also pocketed about $35,000 or so. And this That's was in incredible. 1968. That's incredible. 1968, $35,000 is quite a chunk of change. Now, DK has some cash in his pocket, and that means that he's going racing. DK bought a Ford Torino on credit. <laughs> For $144 a month, and they strip it out, and they haul it across country to Holman Moody and Charlotte for the roll bars and front and rear clips and everything that it needed to be a race car. And he was certain that he was going to show up at the racetrack for his first Winston Cup race and whoop the daylights out of everybody up to and including Richard Petty. But you know what? It wasn't quite that easy. Well, I'm not surprised to tell you the truth. Here's one of those stories that goes right into the pantheon of all time. Great stories here on the same vault podcast. Fire away. DK goes to Holman Moody and he talks to John Holman about buying a set of cylinder heads and John wouldn't sell them to him. He couldn't sell them to him. It was right. evidently a Ford motor company. Thing. That's what I was just going to be approved. Say. Yeah. So what does DK do? He goes back to John late one afternoon just before quitting time and says, I'll give you whatever you need for those cylinder heads. And John says, no, again, that it was a Ford deal and that DK could have offered him all the money in the world. And he still couldn't have sold those heads without Ford's permission. Okay. All right. DK goes to plan B. I say the story certainly didn't end there. <laughs> In the meantime, one of DK's employees is hiding in the men's room. <laughs> the employees leave and DK picks up the guy up later that night with cylinder heads and an intake manifold in hand. <laughs> Wiped, in other words. Swiped, larceny, whatever you want to call it. He got the but cylinder heads. A stroke <laughs> of genius to leave a guy in the men's room. Until closing time, and then go out and do the dirty deed after that. I mean, DK was not going to be swayed at all. He was going to get what he wanted. One thing you never wanted to say to one of the independent drivers like DK was that they were just showing up at the racetrack and stroking their way to an easy paycheck. No, they were not going to win the race. But like DK said in this installment of our interview, the independents were all friends and got along well with each other. But when it came to racing each other, they were racing their behinds off. Absolutely. Uh, they would always help each other, whether it's helping them or giving them equipment as best they knew how, things of that nature. But when they got on the track, let's face it, Rick, they had only themselves to compete with each other. Each and every week, there were a handful of cars racing for the checkered flag the win each week but dk Ulrich, buddy arrington jimmy means richard childress elmo langley 
Junie Dunleavy, and who all ever else that you want to throw into that group, they were all racing to be the best of the rest back then. Right. And they thought they deserved something a little bit more about that. We've talked about this several times in the past, how the independents got together, confronted NASCAR, demanding more money, and Bill French Jr. realized that without the independents, they didn't have a race field. They didn't have a race unless they wanted a six-car race or something like that. That eventually led to plan money, which has benefited the independents a lot more. We have also talked about how NASCAR is a lifestyle and a way of life. Well, sure. that was certainly the case for this independent group of drivers. They would leave their shops and homes in Charlotte, and they would go to Atlanta, and then from Atlanta to Texas, and then into Juarez, <laughs> <laughs> and then on to Riverside, then Michigan, then Pocono, and then back home. So you look at that, and that's more than a month on the road. And for a team scratching by on shoestring budgets and racing for the purse money just to make it to the next race, that had to have been an adventure, a very difficult adventure. It was. And I can tell you one thing, too. They weren't Sting in your glittering Hilton or your Merritt, anything like that. And they weren't eating steak dinners every night either. It was really a rough go for them sometimes, but that's what they wanted to do. Hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, Students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. The June 15th, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene, Benny Parsons had himself a day at Riverside beating Richard Petty to the finish line by just 29 seconds. (laughs) Just? (laughs) Steve, it was a thriller. (laughs) 29 seconds in NASCAR is a country mile, I'll tell you that. Kel Yarborough dominated this race early on, but had a right front tire go flat on lap 54 just past the start-finish line. He had to limp his car all the way around the racetrack, and when he used a shortcut to get into the pits through a rear entrance, A 30-second penalty added insult to injury. Still, he was able to salvage a fifth-place finish 
one lap down to Benny Parsons. Daryl Waltrip needed a four-minute pit stop to change a fan belt and hoses in order to correct an overheating problem, and he was credited with a 16th place finish four laps down. Now, Steve, from what I understand, you have to go to the car dealership later this afternoon to get some issues resolved on your car. Do you think that you will be there just four minutes while they repair those problems? No, Rick, I tend to doubt it. Now, maybe four days, but not <laughs> four minutes. Ain't nothing like kicking a co-host while he's down. <laughs> <laughs> and you're good at that. <laughs> Biddy said in this issue, today we got the breaks we hadn't been getting. If Kel and Daryl hadn't had problems, we probably wouldn't be here right now. But they did, and we stuck together for a change. It's a great feeling. The race was sponsored by Napa, and according to the race lead, Benny had recently purchased a Napa store in North Carolina with money that he had collected after winning another Napa-sponsored event at Charlotte the year before. I did not know that Benny Parsons ever owned a Napa auto parts store. No, I didn't either. But given the circumstances, I'm not surprised, though. He wins a couple of races sponsored by Napa. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if Napa takes a look at Benny Parsons and says, this guy would be a very good spokesman for our company. Now, in order to get him, let's give him a bargain right on buying one of our stores. It's a win-win situation for us all the way around. We get a spokesman, we get a store. And here's the connection to our interview this week. DK Ulrich finished 14th in this event, four laps down. Well, he wasn't the worst, was he? <laughs> no, he was not. Steve Wade, you had a feature in this issue on Humpy Wheeler, who was the general manager at Charlotte Motor Speedway at the time. Yes. And I drove down to Charlotte to get that interview with Humpy, and he was very gracious about it. Humpy was a kind of guy that, if you worked for a small-town paper or you hadn't been on the beat very long, he didn't ignore you. He opened up to every writer who ever tried to interview him. It was great talking to him. So you had a feature in this issue in 1978. And just for perspective, I was still three months short of my 11th birthday when this issue came out. Well, we don't need to go any further, do we? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Humpy said in your story, the world 600 will be a very, very emotional day for me, especially when I walk in and see my mother at the track. She's from a poor family in Bessemer city. Ever since I was 15 years old, I have wanted only one thing in life to be a race promoter. It was my mother who helped convince my father, who was a football coach and couldn't stand stock car racing that it was a healthy outlet for me. He accepted her opinion and even gnashed his teeth and took me to a few races. I was going to them before I was old enough to hitchhike. <laughs> well, you know, Humpy saying all that about his mother made me the butt of jokes back in the office up there in Ronald. They were saying, Humpy's mama. Well, let's call this story this tale of Humpy's mama. And I said, come on, guys. She's just telling a story about his life. <laughs> Don't pick at me about his mama. Speaking of mamas. Oh, no. There was a press release written by STP's PR department in this issue on Linda Petty, who was Richard's wife, Elizabeth Petty, who was Lee's wife, and Richard and Maurice's mama, 
and Richard and Linda's daughters, Sharon and Lisa. And as you mentioned in the intro, I don't know that I have ever seen another interview with Miss Elizabeth. I got news for you, Rick. I don't think I've seen one either. Ever. And I've been around a lot longer than you. And Linda said in this story, Richard's job is racing. And my job is to raise his family right and be a good wife to him. We go to as many races as we can because we want to be together as much as we can. That's the way with the patties. And I'm a part of them now. I don't worry about him getting hurt. He told me not to think about it. So I don't. Now, I don't know that that was always the case with Linda. Well, probably not, but I guarantee you it had to be the case most of the time. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been there. Elizabeth Petty said, I admit I never had an idea it would come to all this. When Lee had his accident in 1961, I wasn't surprised. It was a hard time, but it could have been worse. I was upset when Richard was starting. Lee was hard on him, and so many people expected so much, but it's worked out. I'm afraid for them, of course. It's hard on any woman in any race family. There's nothing we can do but wait and hope. It's no good trying to make a man not do what he's bound and determined to do. My men are good at it, worked hard at it, and don't take needless chances. There's a lot of manliness to it, and my family has been something special in it and has been able to stay real close because of it. I feel real proud. One of the things that stuck out to me about this quote from Elizabeth Petty was about the expectations on Richard when he was starting out as a second generation, the son of a former NASCAR champion. You can go down the line and talk about expectations on future generations including Kyle Petty, including Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Chase Elliott and whatever other drivers, second-generation drivers you want to name. Well, Rick, there's an attitude that these families adopt, and I think it has a lot to do with being stoic about what's going on. You have a job to do. This is what you want to do. Go out and do the job as best you can. We cannot be worrying about things going wrong or suffering injuries. If we do that, we just aren't going to get the job done. And that includes every member of the family thinking that way. Sharon, who was Richard and Linda's oldest daughter, said, I wouldn't want to be anybody else's daughter. He's a good daddy and doesn't lose his temper. If I do something wrong, he just tells me not to do it again. If I could, I think I'd like to try racing. I just might. I think it would be fun. Kyle is teaching me to drive. Daddy tried, but he called me a hopeless case. <laughs> <laughs> and if Kyle raced, I would really root for him. And finally, Lisa said, I'm afraid for daddy, but he's done it so long and does it so good. I reckon he'll be all right. I feel we've got a good family and it doesn't matter that my daddy is a race driver and famous. He doesn't make that much of it. He's just daddy. And that's absolutely true of Richard. He doesn't think a whole lot about fame or anything like that. We all know this. And for Lisa to say, he's just daddy, I think that's just spot on.
Hi, this is Will Lynn. Hi, I'm Kirk Shelmerdine. Hi, I'm Larry McReynolds. This is Andy Petrie. Hey, I'm Dalen Hart Jr., and you're listening to the Scene Ball Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Steve, I don't know what kind of weekend you had this past weekend, but my sons, Adam and Jesse, they had a really good weekend. (laughs) I know why. (laughs) They are both students at Appalachian State up in Boone, North Carolina, and they just happened to be home for my birthday that was yesterday. And Steve, we watched that Appalachian State, Texas A&M game from the opening kickoff to the final whistle. And I just wish that there was some way to recreate the look on my boys' faces when they won that ball game. That was something. A knocked off Texas A&M. Huge win. I tell you what, Rick, them Mountaineers from Appalachian State, when it comes to football, they are kind of tough. You remember just a few years back, they went up to Michigan a known powerhouse, and knock them off. Got to watch out for them Mountaineers, man. They knocked Michigan off and Texas A&M off on their home turf. They went into their house and And slapped them around, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I really do hate the fact that they weren't at school when that happened because all the students poured onto King Street there in Boone that's the main drag through town, and they had themselves a big party. I hate that they missed out on that. Well, I know you do, Rick, but on, I think there's one side of you that says, maybe I don't hate it all that much. Listen, I saw the video of those kids out there running around the streets and carrying on in Boone. I think there's a side of you that says, hmm, I'm glad they're here sitting <laughs> beside me. I'm going to play the fifth on that one. (laughs) (laughs) So in honor of the Appalachian State University Mountaineer football team, enjoy this. (laughs) 